This is a podcast of conversations about connection, change, and creativity. And today we're joined by Jess Ehrlich. Jess is a mother of two young children and lives in New Zealand with her husband and two fur babies. Jess is a writer and has recently published a book of poetry called From One Mum to a Mother. I've been following Jess's journey for a while now, and I am continually inspired by her authenticity and the way she lives with integrity and transparency. Jess creates a space for mothers and people in general to feel seen, heard, and understood. She fosters dialogue around things we usually find challenging to talk about, the parts of ourselves and our thoughts enveloped in shame. Jess has created a community online that shares vulnerability, strength, and connection. I feel so incredibly connected to the work that she does as a fellow poet and as a powerful woman. I'm so grateful to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so, yeah, I'm very excited. I, um, yeah, every time I read anything that you post, I'm just like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And I just want to share it everywhere. Um, and I know oh, that a lot of people have, um, yeah, felt the same. That's so nice to hear. So what made you want to share so openly? What kind of inspired you to just be so authentic and honest about your life and the things that were going on for you day to day? I think at the beginning, it, um, my space actually just, I started for a place to put baby spam. Yeah. So I never started my page with the intention of writing the pieces that I do. Um, it kind of just, it, I don't even really know at what point it started to turn. It might've been some of the other people that I was following or seeing some um, other really vulnerable pieces as I was searching hashtags and things like that, that I was inspired to write again because I've always enjoyed writing. And um, I guess I'd call myself a writer now, but it was always more of a hobby. And as I started to see people open up and be vulnerable, it kind of gave me that I guess, permission to do the same. And it was kind of a two-way street as well. As soon as I would post something, and obviously I'd be very scared hitting post, as soon as I would see other people um, support me or resonate with my words, it gave me that courage to keep sharing and um, connecting with so many other like-minded mothers. Yeah, I really am. Um, I, really I feel am. that. I um, I was... I published a book of poetry a couple of years ago, um, also written, uh, I guess, in times that I really needed to hear something. I, I wrote what I needed to hear in those moments. Um, and rather than seeking outside of myself or, you know, numbing myself, I just like sat and was present with that. But then sharing it, um, I remember feeling extremely vulnerable and like exposed. And it's almost like you're handing your diary to someone to read, you know, your journal, like here are my inner thoughts and, it's a really scary process, but through it, yeah, I also found that vulnerability breeds vulnerability and honesty breeds honesty. And mm. it's almost like we can give ourselves permission to really be seen and for others to feel seen as well. So it's really. Yeah. Thank you. Um, has writing always been like a therapeutic or cathartic process for you? And when did it start? I have boxes and boxes and storage of poetry books from when I was about five, pretty much as soon as I could put pen to paper. 
I was writing. Um, and they were always just little pieces like, you know, about mum or about our pets, you know, just little cutesy little bits of poetry. Um, but I remember at about 10 years old, I wrote a piece in primary school that um, was actually quite a dark piece, but I don't think anybody else realized that because they ended up publishing it and printing it up in the um, school foyer. And I remember like every time I'd walk in there and I'd look at this piece, I thought, I don't know if anyone really knows what this is about, but it was quite, it was the first piece I ever wrote where I realized that writing was cathartic. It wasn't just like, oh, look, I've, I've accomplished something. It was, wow, I feel this huge release from doing this. And I think that was my turning point from that moment forward. Um, I really wrote about pieces that, well, I was just pouring my heart out basically. And it wasn't so much for anybody else. It was always for me. Um, but I guess in the hopes that somebody else would be able to take something from it. Yeah, uh, that really resonates with me. And I think that a lot of the people that follow you would would say that it definitely resonates. I've like looked at some of the comments and so many um, people are sharing pieces that, you know, they're saying, you know, this is really like, I shared this with my partner and it's brought us closer and like brought me to tears. And I think that's such a gift to give to people is, you know, your gift of writing um, and then allowing them to express themselves through it. Um, and yeah, communicate. That's, that's such an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess creating this community, how, how important is it as a mother to have community and to have that kind of support? I think it is incredibly important. And to be honest, I wish that I had this um, when I had had my firstborn, Harry, because that, I mean, a lot of my pieces are around what I experienced postpartum with Harry, um, because that was a really, really lonely time for me. And it wasn't necessarily that I didn't have people around me or that I didn't have support. Um, I think it was more that I hadn't seen anyone be so open about motherhood. And maybe I was just looking in the wrong places. But when you go to your antenatal classes, it's very factual. Um, I read a lot of books because at the time I thought that's what you needed to do. And everything was about preparing for the baby. There wasn't a lot out there that uh, made me feel like my feelings were validated. And um, since creating this community, which um, just sort of happened, I've realized how important it is to have that connection, to be able to support each other. It's that whole, everyone wants to hold the baby, but who wants to hold the mother type thing. Mm. And I think if the mother is in a good place and she's feeling seen and she's feeling heard, she has that support. She's going to be such a better mother for her children. Um, yeah. I just think it's so, so important to be open and honest about the real, the real stuff and the highs and the lows. And I think that's, you know, in general, whether it's motherhood or anything that we go through in life, if we feel like we're doing it alone and there's a lot of shame wrapped up in it, we're going to hide and feel disconnected from ourselves and from, from everyone else. But if we're honest about things like miscarriage, things like having kids is sometimes you just have really shit days and, and the, the biggest blessing and there's so much joy. One of the, the lines that I, I love is that that fourth trimester, 
when your baby smiles, it's, it's almost like it saves you and it's there mm. as, you know, this divine thing that saves you because it is really important. I'm, um, I'm currently doing my, my honors in psychology and I'm thinking about a thesis to write. And part of it is looking at how community and support um, help mothers and also help childhood development and what that would look like if more mothers had access to even just, especially during COVID, right? Like mothers groups are, are rare these days to actually be able to go and, and, and physically be present. So having this online community, like, like you have, I think is, is changing the way we see community and relate to, to motherhood. I think it's, yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so important. And I mean, I think we, we're, we're our own worst critics at the end of the day, but we're so um, afraid of judgment and I think that's one of the reasons that um, when it comes to motherhood, it is so much harder because, you know, we're already so fragile and vulnerable and we, you know, our hearts are cracked open already. So to then <clears throat> turn around and admit to somebody, this is, I'm finding this really, really difficult or, <clears throat> or even, you know, I didn't bond with my baby straight away, just as an example, they're really hard things to admit because we're already beating ourselves up over that. Um, and we're just longing for somebody else to say, it's okay, I've been through that too. And I really didn't have, I mean, I was the first out of my friends to have a baby. So there was that. <clears throat> and I remember uh, we were in an online chat with my antenatal friends. And I have some really lovely friends from that group. But I was really struggling with breastfeeding and I felt like I was the only one. And <clears throat> we were going back and forth and we'd all pretty much had our babies and um, everyone was saying, oh yeah, I'm good. Yeah, we're great. And just talking about the babies. And I just came straight in there and I was like, well, isn't breastfeeding hard? Really struggling over here. And um, no one really replied to that. Everyone sort of went a bit silent and I thought, oh my God. Like, I, And I knew two others were struggling. And I just remember thinking, I'm just needing someone to tell me that they're going through this as well. So I don't feel like I'm failing. Like I was desperately seeking that out. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's really hard. Cause it's almost like, who's going to be the first one to open up that dialogue. Who's going to be the first one to admit it. Cause I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're kind of zipped quite tightly when we're in the outside world. And, you know, we've got these different masks that we wear as mother, as therapist, as writer, as wife as just being human and going out there and having to be like, especially I think in New Zealand and Australia, it's very like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. Yeah, I'm good. Great. How are you? And then eventually it's like, but how are you actually? Yeah. How are you really doing? And so it can kind of be scary to be the first one to say it, but there are people wanting that and really desperate to hear it. And those expectations of what it means to be a good mother or a good parent and, and the challenges that women face in terms of struggling with breastfeeding or struggling with sleeping and, and, and whether you co-sleep or you don't co-sleep or you bottle feed or you breastfeed. or And it, I think it's a huge challenge because we as humans put those big expectations on ourselves. And you wrote um, a beautiful poem that children won't remember whether the house was clean or messy or whether you breastfed or you bottle fed or you co-slept or you didn't. They remember your energy and your love and your presence and the fact that when they needed you, you were there. And 
that's all we need as humans. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so true. And I, I think as well, the, um, the healthcare over here, I'm not too sure what it's like in Australia postpartum, but we have a, um, sort of a plunket nurse assigned to us, uh, for the first, I can't actually remember when it is. I think we see our midwife for six weeks. And then after that, we have a plunket nurse assigned to us for a certain amount of time. And um, I had a brilliant midwife for my second child, but I always found that they'd sort of rush through these clipboard questions. And then the very end question was kind of like, and now I have to ask you this, do you feel safe in your home? How are you? And it just really felt like to me, like while they do an amazing job in that space, I, I mean, they're not paid enough for one. And they can only do so much, but there really needs to be more public funding for um, trauma as a result of childbirth. And there just isn't. And I think that is a huge problem within itself. Um, I know that they can only do so much. They're only, you know, they're so stretched. I had postnatal anxiety with Harry and it was going to take me, I think, two or three months to see somebody. And I needed someone to see me much sooner than that. Um, so yeah, there needs to be some improvement in that space. I don't have the answer, but definitely. I I think priorities of a government can often be quite backwards. You know, we look at like funding for nurses, for teachers, for social workers, the people that are the backbone to our community and are really helping people in need. And there's not enough funding put, put to that, um, like even in my industry, it's really rare to be able to work with clients for more than three months. It's like, okay, well, you, everything should be sorted in three months. And in my, in, in my book, it's like, well, sometimes it can take up to three months to just build rapport with clients and, and, and have someone feel comfortable to tell you really honestly how they're feeling. Um, and mothers are going through, it's like starting, starting a new job and not being being qualified for it because no there's no handbook there's no book that will ever tell you right this is this is going to work follow steps a b c and you've got it you'll be fine so i think our our community relies on other caregivers and 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 that kind of communication between Mm -hmm. everyone to be able to to really check in and be like are you experiencing this is this normal do you think that like is that okay what's worked for you what hasn't um Mm. So what do you feel was like the biggest adjustment you had to make when you became a mother for the first time? Um, I think the adjustment to my expectations. I mean, obviously there were many adjustments, but that was a really big one. I think going into my first birth, people would ask me things like, are you going to breastfeed? And I'd just say, oh yeah, of course, you know. Um, I didn't really give it much thought because again leading up to the birth and the antenatal classes and all of that and the textbooks they talk a lot about how to get the latch right and um and what breastfeeding should look like but there isn't really a lot about what if you can't breastfeed well what then what happens to you emotionally um so my expectations on what I would be able to do were very high so having to lower those and, and really seeking out that permission from my midwife or Lalish League um, to stop breastfeeding or to stop trying was was really hard. And that brings me back again to 
trying to seek out from other people as well, other mothers who were unable to breastfeed, just so I had someone to say, you're not alone. Like, this has happened to me and you haven't failed. It's not easy for everyone. Um, It doesn't come naturally for everybody. And that was just really hard for me to find for some reason. What do you feel like women who are experiencing this currently or will in the future, what do you feel like are some steps that they can take to really get the ball rolling and finding support? Is it reaching out to other mothers or? I think that would be a start. I think that, um, I, I mean, I was messaging people that I hadn't spoken to in years that I knew had kids and I was like, Hey, so, um, when you first had your baby, how was the breastfeeding? And they were probably thinking, Oh my God, well, like you've popped up into my life. This is weird. Um, but definitely keeping energy around you that, that feeds your energy too. I think that it's really important. Like if not everyone wants to be open and honest, some people are private, that's okay too. But if you're needing that, um, you've got such limited time, especially in the fourth trimester, it's just really important to surround yourself with people that build you up, that you can be open around, that are open and honest back. Um, there are a lot of mum support groups online that are really good, some really great pages to follow that share um, like beautiful pieces that help encourage you and make you feel less alone. Um But other than that, I mean, that's really, other than the mum groups that I was a part of that sort of dissipated, especially now with COVID, I sort of think that's really all I know about. Mm. Mm. So I've worked with a lot of families and and for a long time was doing nannying and it'd start like at seven in the morning and get the kids up and breakfast and what would look like, I guess, a mum's day, except at the end of the day, I gave the children back to their parents and I went home and had all this time for self-care and routine and have a bath and make myself dinner. And it's quiet. And I didn't have that same kind of feeling of my children or extension of me. So they're always on your mind. I got to shut off at the end of the day. So what, and that was firstly an amazing experience and absolutely loved it and feel, you know, really grateful for that, but also even in moments where I was doing it five days a week, like there are moments I felt really lonely. Like, you know, you'd get home and I'd, I'd forget how to talk to adults because mm. I'd, I'd been with kids all day. So I'd be like, ah, I, uh, uh, forget. <laughs> um, so what, um, what are some things that you could, you're doing as a mom that when you don't get to give them back at the end of the day, but maybe they're asleep, what are some things that you do to kind of connect back in with yourself? Well, the most obvious one for me at the moment is writing. Um, it's, it's a huge sense of accomplishment for me because I sort of find that during the day I'm chasing, like probably most mothers, you're chasing your tail. You, you're not really feeling like you're ticking things off the list. And if you are, something else is going straight back on there. So I think it's important to find something for you that feels like a little achievement. Um and I mean, that could be anything, like I said, for me, that's writing. Once I've once I've dumped all my thoughts onto a piece of paper, it's not just that release, but it's also like, oh, look what I've done. Okay, cool. That's there. I've done that now. And that just feels really good for me. Um, there's also lots of little things. I sort of feel like self-care, it's a funny thing. In each season, it looks really different. Like one mum might be able to go on a retreat and um, you might be wondering why all you can manage is club jams in your car on the way to picking up the groceries. But I know that for me, that's also a form of self-care. 
just having like that little, like a little car ride alone and pumping some music that I really enjoy listening to. Um, we pay for a cleaner. So that is a huge form of self-care for me. Um, it gives me so much free time. And on the weekends, I don't have to worry about vacuuming or anything like that. We can kind of spend it together as a family. Um, I also get my nails done. That's like, that used to be a given before children. <laughs> now it's like not as often, but it's definitely a wee treat. I think just finding those little pockets of time and planning what you're going to do, I think that's really important as well. You've got to have some kind of plan because um, if you find yourself having a spare moment and you've got nothing to do, then you sort of end up just pottering around the house and probably cleaning. Yep. <laughs> um, I've watched a lot of your, um, I guess, your Instagram stories and there was one that I was just, I was on the floor. I was laughing so hard about the, the guy that kept trying to come to your house and ask you to um, have five minutes of your time. Yes. <laughs> I, I was just. I know what five minutes is worth to me. <laughs> and I was like, this is the reality of, you know, most caregivers like who are doing it full time like it is a full time job and for someone else then when you can't even five minutes to give yourself time to give it to someone mm. else it's just like but you find such um humor in it as well so so how do you find time to just like or, or what you know what kind of I guess helps you to find the joy and the fun in it well, I always have like a little moment to reflect back on a situation and I imagine like, and that we'll talk about that situation. I imagined how crazy I would have looked to him <laughs> because it was just like, I've actually got a note on my door that I got printed up. I think when Harry was about two months old, because obviously I was doing a lot of online shopping and I had a lot of couriers knocking on the door and I was like, right, I can't have this. Had a note put up on the door just saying permission to leave parcel. And then as the months or years have progressed it's changed and now pretty much has all the career companies that can leave the parcel on the floor and it also says do not knock sleeping baby so this sign was very clear for this uh, door knocker yet he knocked on the door and I just sort of opened it and stuck my face out a little bit and I was like I just can't talk right now I've got I've got two babies asleep and he sort of looked through the window and he could see one running around and I was like oh, well that's not gonna work I was like look you just you have to go and anyway to cut a very long story short he came back again a day later and pretty much the same thing played out. I was like, mate, I just can't, I can't do this right now. Like I don't, it's lunchtime. I was trying to explain things to him that he might understand, but probably doesn't have kids and doesn't know um, what 12 o'clock looks like in the middle of the day. And then um, I think it was the third time I pulled in in the car and I had a tantruming Harry in the back and I'd gotten Holly inside and she was looking out the window while the dog was barking. I was trying to get Harry out of the seat and there he is like standing in my driveway. And I'm normally quite a calm, collected person, but I just, oh, it was just too much. And I was like, does it look like I have time for you right now? Does this look like a good time? I was like, get off my property. And he just sort of looked at me like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and just left without a word. And I just thought about it. I was like pretty fired up, but I thought about it later and I thought, oh my God, I must have just looked like an absolute crazy woman. But yeah, seemed to do the track. I and I could find the humor. <laughs> it's good. And I think, you know, for him, it might be, you know, good awareness around contraception until you're really ready for that Absolutely. kind of Absolutely. And that's what I thought. I thought that will be the best contraception for him that he could ever hope for. 
There's that I, little encounter. That's it. You know, <laughs> sex ed classes at school should really just be, you know, mothers showing how it really is every day because mm. it is the hardest job in the world. The other day yeah. I was um, driving with my partner and I, 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 I was reminded about this, um, this little YouTube video that someone had made for Mother's Day and it was this um, kind of fake job interview. Um, but the people that were interviewing for the job didn't know that it was like not a real job. And the guy was going through all the kind of tasks and trials and tribulations that you'd go through. And it's around the clock, you're working 24 hours a day, seven days, you don't really get a full night's sleep, you know, and it's kind of reminded yeah. me of one of your poems as well, of, of the job that it is to be a mother and how many, you're a chef and, and you're a taxi driver. Exactly. Um, and I showed it to him. And then at the end, it's like, do you know that millions of people are doing this job every day for free? Um, mm. and then mm. it was mothers and I was just crying and it's really true. I think a lot of people don't get to see how many hats a mother wears and yeah. how many hats a parent wears, who's a single parent or, or, or a sole parent or the, the, you know, the kind of the one that's at home majority of the time. And yeah. it's really difficult. Um, it and it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And then you and add, I think as well, we're juggling all these hats. We're having to put our own hat down for a long time um to wear all these other ones for our children and that's how we sort of forget about ourselves for a little bit there yeah and I think it I think it also you know we were discussing this just um before we started recording is when we put our own hat aside then there's also we're going to put our other relationship hats aside too because you know, the, the people that need us the most are little and can't, you know, necessarily advocate for themselves and we have to be responsive to all their needs, you know, as, as parents. So how has your relationship with your husband changed and transformed over this time? I know that at the beginning, um, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm really grateful for my husband because he has been so, so supportive and very, um, patient with me and and when I say patient I just mean like it's taken me a long time to be able to feel like I guess I'm comfortable in in this role like I I've been appreciative of being a mother I feel like there is no more uh, rewarding job in the world I love my children to pieces but there's that whole I think I worded it one time in a piece of writing it's like this motherhood lined jacket sometimes you put it on and it feels a little bit cold, um, just not, it doesn't quite fit and you wouldn't change anything, but you know, some days I've just, I've just been off and he's never, um, he's never like sort of pressed me for answers. He's just sort of stood next to me and understood that. And so for that, I am so incredibly grateful. And I think because he has stood by me like that, it's allowed me to figure things out on my own because I didn't need him to try and find answers for me. I just needed to get through whatever it was that I was going through. So we had, um, you know, I'd say like months where I felt like we were just ships in the night. Like we, we lived and breathed um, our baby and everything we spoke about was about Harry. And then I was pregnant four months later, which we wanted to do. And it really has just been, you know, it's coming up three years where it's just been, babies, babies, babies. And that's all we've really had time for. Um, but I've sort of, I've sort of noticed in the last few months, there's been a bit of a shift and we've been making, I mean, I don't think you should wait that long, but we've been making date nights happen a bit more. 
um, because babysitting's become a lot easier for my mum. And I've been finding this really nice reconnection, almost like, almost like getting to know each other again with our new hats, Um, this kind of new discovery. And it's actually really amazing. Um, It's such a beautiful thing, but I feel like you really have to just be patient with yourselves and work through those first few months knowing that it isn't always going to be like that and that they will be there and you will be there on the other side. Mm. How important is it to have that foundation first, you know, have that strength in your partnership first? Because I read in one of your, one of your poems about really knowing that you're going to break when you have kids and crack open and, and, and kind of, fall apart into pieces in, in, in different spots. Um, so how important is it to, yeah, to then know that that person's kind of solid for you? And I think like, I can't remember how I worded it. I think if you're strong to begin with and you break, you're strong enough to build each other back up. And I think like for us, that was so important. And I know it's not like that for everybody. Um, it's, it's not to say that if you have a child before, you're ready and I don't know if anyone's really ever ready but if you haven't been together that long and that happens I mean that doesn't mean to say because you haven't traveled together or you haven't you know bought a home together or you know those things they don't have to happen but I do think that if you can prioritize as much time for each other even while you're pregnant um to really get to know each other to understand each other and to have those conversations not just like about you know, how you want to raise the baby together, but how are you going to be if I go down the road of postpartum depression or, you know, like talk about the real deep stuff, like the things that actually you really need your partner to be there for. Those are the important things. Um, Those middle of the night wags, like that doesn't sound like much, but it honestly, all the times that we would get up in the night, honestly, I felt like we might just break up. Like it was just, I mean, we never would have, but you know, you just, you want to, you want to fight each other because you're so, you're just broken. Like it's just so, so difficult. And I just don't think that we would have been able to um, hold each other and get through it as well as we did if we didn't have that real solid friendship um, going into it, because I don't think children will ever band-aid a relationship, um, but they definitely can make it stronger if you just have the patience and that foundation to begin with. Mm. I think relationships are often our mirrors, you know, and, and pre-kids, I guess, you know, for me, relationships have really shown me um, and can trigger me in ways because it's, it's, it's this person that's almost the closest thing as an extension of yourself before you have kids. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I'm wondering how your kids have, have been a mirror to you in that way. I think... Um... I'm probably, I'm not the world's most patient person. Um, I like everything to be quite in order, quite um, meticulous. And I like um, to know what's going to happen next. I think because I was so on the go before I had children, um, it really helped me to slow down. And I think I needed that. And Drew, my um, husband on one hand, he was always a bit more chilled than I was, but that wasn't enough to make me chilled. I was like, no, 
you're chilled, that's cool. I'm going to rush around for the both of us. And I was quite happy to do that. But then, yeah, when I had children, it was kind of like, um, you know, with bottle feeding, with breastfeeding, whatever it was, I would sit down on the couch and I was forced to have that time to just connect, be present. And if it wasn't for them, um, I don't know if I ever would have really learned how to do that and and be mindful in that in that space. And even now, um, Holly, she's coming up too, and I still cuddle her to sleep every night. And um, I mean, I'd been told, you know, you're going to create a bad habit, but actually she loves it and it's kind of our wee thing, but it also gives me a chance to sit down. We talk about what we did. Uh, she doesn't speak, but she tries what we did in the day. And it's just that, yeah, it's that moment of just being still, allowing time to be still. So I think that's what I've learned from them um, the most so far. That's really, really beautiful. And I think children can really teach us about mindfulness. And, you know, I, I even watch um, my partner's best friend. He um, he has a, a daughter who's turning two and I spend a lot of time with her and just watching how she like ogles at like grass and, you know, little tiny little things or like picking lemons and she's smelling them and she's feeling them. And she's using all her senses and it really brings you into this like present moment place rather than if you can really tap into it rather than thinking about what the next next task is to do because I'm also really task orientated and want things in order and it makes me feel safe to to know that I have a plan um but yeah it's oftentimes something that I really have to think like okay if I prioritize the plan I'll feel this way at the end of the day but if I allow myself to find pockets of presence with with her I'm actually going to yeah, the dishes might not be done or the boys will come home and everything, nothing's cooked. <laughs> I have to quickly rush yeah. to cook, but I've had a really present day where I'm actually feeling more connected to myself um, as well. Yeah. And so I always think as well, at the end of the day, when I'm in bed and I'm sort of reflecting, it's not the dishes and, um, you know, folding the washing that makes me smile. It's those moments, those little memories that I've made with them. And it's like, just, it's a perspective thing as well. That It's taken me a long time actually to learn, but it's the little things that are the big things. Mm. And um, when I realized that it was a game changer for me. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, you've spoken a lot about Harry being um, like a highly sensitive child. Um, and there's something that you wrote that I just found really profound. Um, you said, because to be there for him, to really be there, I have to sit beside myself and confront some of the things that trigger me too. Um, and I, I really, I think this is a really profound um, kind of concept and, and, and experience to really, to be attuned to your child who is so sensitive um, you also have to kind of be attuned to yourself and allow yourself to, to find that commonality and that sensitivity and to drop into really your own, you know, struggles. And how, how has that process been for you? Was it, you know, something that you struggled with in the beginning or did it come easily to you? Well, in the beginning, I sort of realized when he was about four months old that um, I guess that we were a bit different. We'd go to these mother groups um, or would go out and certain noises would really set him off and they wouldn't phase any other children. <clears throat> um, 
he didn't like new faces very much. Um, and then as he grew, I just learned how incredibly intuitive he was. He, as soon as he could start understanding explanations, he needed one for everything to be comfortable in an environment. He could walk into a room and just, he could feel the energy straight away. He could read that energy. Um, yeah. And he's incredibly empathetic. It's, it's beautiful. But I think the reason why I found it so challenging um, was for one, I didn't even know what highly sensitive was. It took a while for me to really find out um, what those, I guess, traits were. And then when I started doing a little bit more research about it, um, it was really helpful to me to learn some of the tools to um, help him manage his emotions. And I sort of found as well, like I had to ask myself, okay, why am I so triggered? Why am I so triggered by his reaction right now? Because I don't care what that person thinks about us and I'm not going to apologize um, for having a beautifully sensitive child. So why am I so triggered? And I sort of realized um, that probably unintentionally um, growing up that when we feel certain things, and this could be a generational thing, I sort of feel like maybe a lot of feelings were squashed growing up and, um, you know, language matters, I think with that whole don't cry or you're okay. Um, you know, those, those types of things, they really teach you, I guess, to just squash your feelings. And, um, those are some of the mirrors actually that he was holding up to me at the time that I realized I hadn't dealt with my own sensitivity and really embraced that. And I'd put a wall up for so long um, and I'm still, I'm still trying to break that down. I have not done that yet, but I'm learning so much through him. And I know, um, through that realization that I want to make sure that he feels like he is safe to be himself around us, around anybody. And, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's what I've learned from that. It's really, um, it's a really interesting way to kind of relate to any child as well because whether you're a highly sensitive child or you're a child going through something I know a lot of the kids that I've worked with all they really need from their caregivers is to feel seen and understood and held in who mm -hmm. they are and in all of who they are I think most of us who grow up we have this underlying sense of I'm not enough or the way society has shaped us, we have to kind of um, put a lot of our intrinsic qualities that we maybe aren't deemed acceptable and we put them in a little corner and it doesn't mean they're gone. We just shove it down somewhere inside of us and we're told, okay, don't cry or, you know, up you get, you're all good. And yeah. so we go through life then, then trying to zip us up so tightly, which is what we were talking about at the beginning. And I think, our role as caregivers, as, as parents, are, are to really hold a child in, in what they are and who they are as this separateness as well as this extension of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah 100%. And I, I think it's really great because I think a lot of mothers, you know, and, and parents would say, you know, I, I go to the supermarket and when my child's like having a tantrum, I'm just like so embarrassed. I don't know what to do and I... I I'm worried about what other people think and, and to get to a point to really think like rather than thinking about what other people think, how's your child feeling at the moment? Cause even mm -hmm. if it looks, 
you know, disproportionate to what's actually going on, you know, in my eyes, that feeling for them of, of feeling overwhelmed in a big space with lots of people or not getting their need met, even if that need is sugar, right? Like we don't have to give them the sugar, but we still need to validate that their freedom of choice is not being acknowledged. I think as well, like, I mean, it's hard because you sort of feel a little bit like you're on a stage and everyone's watching you and your parenting capabilities. And it, it is hard, but I, um, I guess I just sort of felt early on, like at the end of the day, ugh, you know, we all go through this and um, I don't need to perform to these people. I, my purpose is to um, be there for my child and no matter, like if it's, if the way I um, handle the situation might not be how somebody else handles it, that's fine. So long as um, he's okay, his needs are being met and that's, that's just how I've been, I guess, looking at it. Mm. It's re- that's really great. How is how has it been with um, the difference between having one and two? Well, <laughs> I mean, it happens so quickly. They've got a year apart, so um, it's been quite challenging to get out of the house with them alone. Um, they're pretty much at the age now where they're almost looking like twins. However, Harry is almost three, but he does look like a five-year-old. He's a very big boy. Um, so it's, yeah, it's quite funny to watch because, because, because he's so big as well, it's taken him a lot longer to sort of find his center of gravity. So Holly's catching up to him real quick. So they're sort of scootering around together and becoming wee mates, but wee mates who fight. I won't um, sugarcoat that. It can be very testing having to hover around, making sure that they're not poking each other's eyes out. Um, yeah, it's been mad, but I'm really happy that we, that we had them close together. Yeah. My friend Jazz, she has two as well. And they're a little bit further apart. And she said it it can be really hard because, you know, their needs are different, what they, their interests are different. And so, yeah, also finding time to like meet both their needs and both their interests and, and take them out to do things that they'll both enjoy together has been slightly challenging. And yeah, how are you doing during this time of COVID and, and having to have, I mean, I know New Zealand had a really long lockdown. Like, what was that like with kids? I know a lot of parents in Melbourne at the moment are really struggling. Um, being at home yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, we actually had a bit of a different experience. I found it actually okay. Um, I found like out of this, you know, terrible tragedy and and horrible um, situation that actually some good came from it for us. Um, It was just really nice having Drew home so much. The kids absolutely loved it. They were thriving. Um, And we, I feel like Drew and I were actually never better. Like, I know a lot of people were tearing each other's um, heads off and we definitely, definitely had those moments. But we just... I felt like we were communicating a lot more. Um, we were enjoying the little things. We were hanging out in our backyard a lot and making fun out of just, it was almost like we were forced to um, appreciate those little things, like what we were talking about before, but we were forced to do that. And it's it was really great for us. I think we actually needed to do that. Yeah. What are some tips that, um, that, parents and caregivers that are at home with kids at the moment do you think are are some tips to change things up or um have a have a little bit of a difference in each day 
Oh, well, I mean, it depends on the age of their kids because I know if they're a little bit older and they're used to going kindy or school, it's, yeah, I, I can't comment to that because I think that would be very challenging. But my two were quite easily entertained. Um, there were times where I just had to put the TV on for, you know, half an hour there, half an hour there because I had to get things done. But I would just get out. Um, I store away different toys at different times so I don't get them all out together. I find that if I put something away for say two months and then bring it back out again, that's like a good like half an hour to an hour of entertainment. So that's been one little trick that I've been doing for the last two years um, until they're completely over it. Um, but also just finding things to do in your house, you know, opening up the Tupperware drawer, just um, if you can be bothered making food and I hate doing that, I hate baking with the kids, I won't lie, but just those little things, you don't have to be going out all the time. There is so much, um, you know, planting, you know, doing a veggie garden or something like that. Um, we did a few things with, like a few things like that with our kids and yeah, they seem pretty happy with that. Yeah, I was going to, um, I was going to say and suggest the same things. Cause you know, when we had Ivy, I, I had her for um, a Friday and, you know, I took her to the park and you know, took her for a baby Chino, but those things last like a good 10, 15 minutes and then they're done. Um, and yeah. I found that like we got home and on a Friday, I like to like bake bread and, and that's my like little thing. And so I let her help me a little bit. And then I realized that like, she just like, there's no way she's going to put the right amount in. So I set up yeah. a little table for her and like gave her some flour and let go of my need for things to be neat and clean and thought, you know mm. what, flour's going to get on the floor. It's an easy vacuum. And I just gave her like one sort of measuring cup and a bowl. And then 10 minutes later, I added another measuring cup of a different color. And then it was another 10 minutes. And then I added another shape of something. And then it was another 10 minutes. And I realized like, if you give things and introduce things slowly, which is like a very Steiner um, concept of, you know, introducing things slowly to kids, then they get to immerse themselves in that particular thing. Yeah. yeah, Toys on rotations. Great. I always find kids like, prefer to play with things that you're playing with and their own like the tv remote or (laughs) another thing that they loved is um i just bring a chair up to the laundry basin and one in the kitchen and just fill up the sink and they'd pretend that they're doing the dishes or something like that and that it was messy and you know but whatever (laughs) it worked Exactly. I think I think when you get desperate, um, anything that makes them happy and kind of keeps them entertained and not stir crazy in a in a house that you can't leave is yeah is really important. Um, what are you most grateful for at the moment? Um, I think as cliche as it sounds, it would just definitely be the people I have around me and um, my close friends and my family. Um, I just. Yeah, I've had such incredible support uh, right from the get-go and, you know, throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and then with my writing. Um, Definitely, definitely family and friends, yeah. So to any new expectant mothers who are about to embark on this journey of motherhood, what what are some things you'd tell them? Oh, gosh, there's just so many things, but I think... I think the main thing would just be to lower your expectations. Um, It's really easy to say that. It's not that easy to do that, and I get that. But really just count getting through the day 
as a win because it is it is a huge accomplishment um, raising tiny humans um and like i said before another really big one is just don't feel this pressure to see everyone and um you know be passing your baby around to everybody at the beginning just take that time for yourself and um yeah it's the energy you have around you is just so important so um yeah choose it wisely i guess awesome thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast i feel super grateful and i know that you know your message is just helping thousands of women every day and i hope that more people are able to connect with the work that you're doing and you know really that just sharing slabs of your life with people is already so um so helpful for for them and yeah maybe i'll maybe you'll hear from me you know in a couple of years and i'll be like remember how we did that but can you just let me know about this part of it and that part of it because yeah it's really it's really nice to to kind of talk to someone that's really real and and honest about all the things the joys and the challenges thank you it's really encouraging hearing that and um, i really appreciate you asking me to be on your podcast how can people find you oh well i'm in the process of setting up a website i haven't launched it yet but um, at the moment just on instagram and on Facebook under Jess Erlish Writer. Well, when that happens, I'll, uh, I'll update the show notes and have the website there too. But for now, yes, Instagram will be great.